thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. How's it going, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is Mike Vandebogart. Hey, guys. Thanks for tuning in to uh, Locations Unknown. We have uh, a great episode for you today, episode 10, actually. Uh, before we get into the episode, we've got a couple updates. Uh, first, I'd like to thank everybody who's been uh, emailing us and contacting us with comments, constructive criticism. <laughs> We have a thick skin, so we can take it, and we we read every email we get, and uh, Joe and I are new at this, so we, we never did podcasting before this, so we appreciate all the feedback. Like I said, we can take it, so don't don't hold back on us. <laughs> um, we also like praise. I take, I, take, I take it as a sign that, yeah, I take it as a sign that people are actually listening. <laughs> uh, second point... We've got an exciting update on a case we did a couple months ago on Arvin Nelson. I w- I, we've actually been in contact with a couple of people that have known Arvin for a long time, 30 plus years, and we're, we're still kind of working out the details, but we're, we're hopeful that we might be able to get them on a live interview for a follow-up show on Arvin. So this would, this would be really cool. Um, they're gonna set the, the record straight on some of the facts that we, we mentioned in the episode. And I think we might learn a lot of new details about Arvin that aren't aren't out there in the public. Yeah, there were some there were some things reported in newspapers that were a little bit different from what they said. So it'll be really nice kind of hearing it from the horse's mouth of people that were very close and good friends with Arvin for many years. Also, I'd like to mention that uh, Joe and I are taking a little bit of a summer break here after this episode. We've been shockingly doing this since December now. You know, our summers are getting pretty busy. Uh, Joe just got back from Colorado, and I'm heading out to Alaska later in the summer. So uh, don't fret. We're not going away. We're just taking a break, and we'll be back uh, sometime mid-September. Yeah, it'll give us some time to put, some, put together some really great cases and do uh, a lot more research on them before we, we do the recording. So it'll be good. Before we get into the this latest episode, you were out in Colorado this last weekend attempting to summit Capitol Peak. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what you did, what happened? Sure. Yeah, it was uh, my second attempt at Capitol Peak. And if anyone follows us on Facebook, you have seen the videos. They they loaded simultaneously, but I recorded <laughs> them at different times. It's just I didn't have internet, and all of a sudden they uploaded when I got back into town. But yeah, we were going out to summit Capitol Peak. We were making great time up to Moon Lake. By the time we got up there, we, we met a gentleman who was actually coming out uh, that had full ice gear and there was a lot of avalanches from the snow. So unfortunately, we were unable to summit. Uh, it was a beautiful hike. And, and I, know, I know as you uh, as we have said on the show before, Mike, we're not idiots when it comes to what we do in the backcountry. No. So I wasn't about to take a risk with people uh, with some deep snow drifts and avalanche stuff going on. So it was a wonderful trip, beautiful hike. So if you're in the Snowmass Aspen area, I highly recommend doing the Capitol Peak hike. Even if you're not a climber, 
hike up to Moon Lake. It was gorgeous. Nice. Very well worth the trip. Um, now, do you plan to try to summit again in the future? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I have. I'm going to go like late in the summer next year. Yeah. Where there's and I'll plan a bunch of extra days so I could stay at base camp many days to make sure I get a summit because that's one of the ones I've wanted very badly over the last couple of years now. So hopefully third time's a charm. Uh, and how many people did you go with this time? Uh, this time it was just with two other people that were with me on the first trip. Um, really the whole point behind it was for us when we didn't summit last time, we were ready to drive back the next weekend. Yeah. <laughs> so if I didn't have a family, yeah. I would have, but, uh, yeah, this, you know, life gets in the way. So we, I waited about a year and a half. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking next year, my main focus will be getting a date to summit this mountain. Well, I I'm excited to hear about it. Maybe I'll be able to join in next year. Uh, that one stretch, oh, yeah. uh, heading to the summit knife's edge, I believe it's called. Yes, uh, it is. It sounds terrifying and amazing at the same time. <laughs> exactly. That's why I want to do that one. <laughs> yeah, you're basically on a knife's edge for like the last <laughs> few hundred yards or whatever. So I, I watched a few YouTube videos and it looks like uh, on one side you have a sheer rock drop off for thousands of feet. And then on the other side, you've got, you know, like a boulder field that goes down, I don't know, 800, 1,000 feet. Yeah, pretty much. And you're kind of just <laughs> straddling just a little chunk of rock for 100 yards, yeah, 150 yeah, yards. Yeah, it's all like it's all like crumbling slate too. Yeah. So <laughs> just absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it'll be awesome. It'll be great. Where are you going to try and use it with ropes? I know I saw some people. Yeah, I I I think we'll belay. We we brought equipment up there this time. We didn't have any ice gear. That's why we didn't even attempt it. Yeah. But I'm not an idiot, and you know we don't need to lose both hosts of the show. So if we both do it next year, yeah, who would who would at carry least one the of torch us? On? <laughs> yeah, nobody. No, nobody and nobody would care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, on that depressing note, uh, Joe, why don't you mention the sponsor of this episode? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, a special thanks to Verger CBD Products for sponsoring the show, as always. Um, you can go on to vergermed.com and pick up their products. They've, they've been adding new products every week, it seems like. So they have a bunch of new chocolate bars out. Uh, one of my favorites is a huckleberry chocolate, which I don't, there's not a lot of people I found out that like a fruity chocolate, but I love it. So they have like dark chocolates, milk chocolates, this huckleberry, they have sugar free. Um, so their chocolate products have been really good for me. And then their baked goods are just coming out now. I don't know if they're available online. Uh, but go check them out. Uh, it's Verger CBD products. That's vergermed.com. V-E-R-D-U-R-E-M-E-D.com. July 2nd, 1938. Four-year-old Alfred Bielharts is camping with family and friends in Rocky Mountain National Park. Alfred and his father went to the nearby Fall River to bathe and prepare for the start of their day. When Alfred ran off to spend time with other campers in their party, he was never seen again. With sightings on Devil's Nest by hikers, river waters diverted, a reservoir drained and no body recovered. Join us this week as we cover the mysterious disappearance of the young boy and what could have happened to him. You are listening to Locations Unknown.
Fall River is a 17.1 mile long tributary of the Big Thompson River in Laramere County, Colorado. The river's source is near the Alpine Visitors Center in Rocky Mountain National Park. It flows down a canyon and over Chasm Falls before a confluence with the Big Thompson River in Estes Park. So basically they're camping on the side of a portion of this like river network. Yeah. Just after a waterfall. So that sounds like it, I looked at a couple of pictures. It looks pretty Chasm Falls looks pretty cool. So it looks like a sweet spot to go camping at. This area of Fall River is located kind of in the center of Rocky Mountain National Park. This park was founded uh, quite a long time ago, January 26, 1915, by President Woodrow Wilson. It's a pretty popular park. In 2017, they had over 4.4 million visitors in the park. It's and This was its second highest annual visitation. Interesting facts about the park. You know, people have been visiting this park for a very long time. Records go back to 11,000 years where projectile points have been found that are believed to have been used to hunt mammoths. So just picture, you know, these giant hairy elephants walking around in Rocky Mountain National Park and kind of early hunters, you know, throwing spears at them. I was going to say they're taking them down with arrows and spears and stuff. That's that's insane because they're so big. I mean, even try think about like trying to get an elephant now with like a spear. Right. How much effort it would take. This park has been visited for thousands of years. It's your, you know, typical alpine climate, the highs in the upper 60s in July to the lows in the teens during the winter months. Now, Joe, uh, Capitol Peak, is that in Rocky Mountain National Park? No, it's it's south of it quite a ways. So the Capitol is on BLM land just outside of Aspen. From what I read about Capitol Peak, it sounds like they do experience extreme weather. Yeah, I mean, well, I was there at at. The foot, it was about 95. It was a hot, it was the hottest day of the year when we got there. Wow. And a week before then, the mountains got two feet of snow. Wow. So like it was blizzard. That's why there were all the, the avalanches and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, Rocky Mountain National Park has a similar type of a reputation for extreme weather events. They've got a lot of complex complex interactions with elevations and slopes going on. It, you know, it causes a lot of moisture to form over the the park. And you've got a lot of different air masses meeting. You've got warm, moist air from the south meeting kind of Arctic cold air masses from the north. A lot of extreme weather, extreme snow events. Uh, in the summer, anybody anybody that's been hiking in the mountains knows that it can go from the 90s to, you know, thunder snow even sometimes, depending on elevation. So you got to be prepared for everything. Yeah, and if you look at the location of the state and even that park, it's almost like in the center of the country to where like the Great Plains are and then you have like the desert below it. And like it's almost like an area right in the middle where just stuff would all mix together. So you get that really weird mix of weather. Yeah. Um, so animals in the park, this will this will play a factor in our case in a little bit. But there's there's quite a few predators in the park. You've got Canadian lynx, foxes, bobcats, cougars, black bears and coyotes. The, you know, the one animal that's missing from the park is grizzlies, and they were moved, removed from the park in the early 1900s. So uh, no grizzlies, but you still got a lot of predators in the park. Especially for small children. Yep. You know, the, the mountain lions and the cats in the area are really a big concern. Yeah. Highest elevation in the park is Long's Peak at 14,200 feet. I believe there's over 124 named peaks and at least of at least 8,700 feet. So... 
a lot of mountains. Great, great place to go hiking and climbing. Oh, I want to move there. <laughs> Every time I go there, I'm like, all right, time to just stay. Yeah, just live out in the woods. Yeah, I, I would. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, besides animals, the biggest dangers for people is going to be exposure. And this is pretty common at any alpine region. Uh, with that many peaks at that high of an elevation, you're going to have a lot of exposed areas above the tree line. You're going to be exposed to uh, an environment that has less oxygen than you're used to. Uh, winds, cold temps, lots of precipitation. Uh, so, it, you know, it's a pretty dangerous environment. It can also be, you know, pretty nice if you catch it at the right time. You just got to keep an eye in the sky because you get up there, there's nowhere to take shelter above the tree line. Yeah, once you're at Alpine, it's it's game over if you're in a storm. Yeah, and, you know, one of the other big killers when people, you know, go up in elevation is altitude sickness. So uh, besides, you know, exposure, you know, some people really succumb to altitude sickness a lot easier than others. So that's something you also have to watch out for. So that is kind of a quick overview of the park. Uh, Joe is now going to kind of go into a character profile and a timeline. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about Alfred and then go into the story. So this being such an old case, we don't have the minute times, but they did keep decent records on the dates and kind of what happened. So it's going to be a little bit of a shorter show, but that's fine. Uh, for those of you that have short commutes, they get mad that we don't have, we've got a couple of those letters that they want the show to match their commute exactly. I apologize <laughs> that we can't match everybody's commute time for our show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Alfred Bielharts, uh was a young male. He was, they, they said three or four, but the more research I did, everyone seems to really focus on that he was four at the time mm -hmm. of the disappearance. Uh, would be 84 today. Uh, white male blonde hair. We have a, a couple pictures we'll post. It will be on one of the covers, uh, just a photo of him. From that era, it's black and white, so you really can't tell. But he looks like a little four-year-old boy, basically. July 2nd. So the family and friends, it's a big group of people. It was the Bielharts and then a couple people that aren't directly related, but they're family friends that went on this camping trip. Uh, it was stated through multiple sources that Alfred went up to Fall River with his father, who was William Billharts, to bathe. So this is like the morning. They just woke up. Mm -hmm. And their party friends who came with, Oren Bronson and Walter Hansen, were both in the camping party. They went upstream to bathe as well. However, they went about 500 feet upstream. So they were just a little separated from where Alfred and his father were. Yeah. So from all the sources we've read, it seems as though Alfred's father finished and was heading back to camp and Alfred wanted to keep playing by the river. So he went up by the other men that were upstream. Again, this is about 500 feet. So within, you know, eye shot, you should be able to see it. Yeah. The issue was Oren and Walter. Now these are the two friends that were also bathing upstream. They returned mm -hmm. to camp without Alfred. So as okay. soon as they got back to camp, everyone realized he's not there and they went into panic mode, just as you would if you were missing your four-year-old, especially next to a stream. Yeah. So the family started searching immediately, frantically, and turned up nothing. So when they couldn't find him immediately, they contacted the ranger at Fall River Ranger Station. His name was Muma, and I couldn't tell. I couldn't find if that was his first or last name. I'm guessing it's the last name. It's Ranger Muma. Yeah. So that's M O O M A W. So Muma activated the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, we're calling them the Triple C or CCC. And it, when I was reading through this, I was actually amazed because this is the 30s. The amount of time they were able to get people together 
yeah. was fascinating. So within 45 minutes, there's an estimated a 100 CCC enrollees searching under the leadership of Muma and the chief ranger, uh, Barton Herschler. So they got 100 people together, the chief ranger together, and they already start searching in under an hour in the wow. 30s. It's not like yeah. they could call people up on their cell phones or things like that. So it was pretty incredible. They were in luck, though, and this was a pretty cool tidbit. So there's a guy by the name of W.C. Hilgedick. He was a chief radio engineer for all of the National Park Service. He happened to be at the park at that time. And he helped the teams establish communication via shortwave radio. And this was like a brand new invention at the time. So, I mean, this is like a new thing, like to have radios and communicate. So this was a at the time a revolutionary technology that we'd compare to probably some type of drone technology today. Oh, yeah. Or I would yeah. say compared to like that heat signature stuff that they use in the things to like find heat and differential. So we talked about that with Joshua Tree. Yeah. Like how it'll just snap photos and the computer runs an algorithm to look for anomalies that aren't part of nature. So like for them, it was these radios so the teams could communicate and the radios were so large they had to be carried on the backs of the people using them. So think about like uh, Saving Private Ryan when they're trying to communicate in the front. Yep. And they have that guy who's his only he's just job a radio is to be, guy. Yeah, he's just the radio guy because it's <laughs> yeah. so huge. So they're using these in the park. So they were able again to assemble this massive team in under an hour. And then the guy who's the new chief radio engineer for the entire park service happens to be there as well. So they they had a lot <laughs> very of very coincidental. It's very coincidental, and they had a lot of good stuff going for them. So you feel like if he was there, like there would have been early success. Yeah. However, they had all these people. There was no finding the boy at all. So now we're fast forward in July 4th. So this is a couple days later after the search is still ongoing, they started adding bloodhounds to the search. So they went to the local state penitentiary and got 50 fresh CCC members and they still uncovered nothing. So now we mm -hmm. have upwards of 150 people searching dogs are now involved. So we're going to go to July 5th now. And this is where they started taking really drastic measures. Yeah. They actually diverted the river that was feeding the main river and they dragged the entire thing. So they basically stopped the flow of water wow. and dragged every inch of the river because at this point they're thinking they're on a recovery mission. Yeah. And they got nothing. They also had the teams deeply search the woods and brush within a 10 mile radius. So now you have, you know, three days of pretty intense activity going on in a small area and we'll always go back to this is a four-year-old boy so it's not like one you know if he's in the river yeah you, you think of the worst thing he he drowns or he gets swept downstream they're dragging and they're pulling up everything they're not finding his body they're searching the immediate area they're not coming up with every anything so they're doing this over several days and nothing they're not finding anything at all yeah so the next major timeline is now on July 11th. So at this time is when they really started dwindling the team. So they had about 12 people only still searching the area. So they're starting to give, you know, basically give up on this. And then it seemed like the last ditch effort was July 12th. And Cascade Dam Reservoir, which sits two miles below the confluence of Roaring River and Fall River, was drained entirely. So basically what they did was they dragged all the water, couldn't find anything. So they said, okay, maybe he drowned and made it all the way downstream. Yeah. They drained the entire reservoir. So they weren't even going to drag it. They drained it so they could see everything and could not find the boy. Wow. So, I mean, think about like the, again, you think it was in the thirties, the amount of stuff they did in 10 days was incredible. Yeah. 
No, and it really helped that they had, you know, a lot of those guys from the CCC just in the park. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, they were very fortunate to have that kind of manpower that quickly, which is shocking that they were able, you know, they were able to assemble that many people that fast and they still weren't able to find anything. Yeah, and that's where I think this this really makes the books about being such a weird disappearance is. We talk about this a lot. Um, it, it, it strikes me similar to the, the case that we just did last time, how he disappeared in like such a short window. Carl. Yeah, it, yeah. I feel like this is kind of the same thing. Like, yes, he's a small boy, um, but it was such a short window. So this 10-day search gained national attention and even the eye of, eye of the FBI because they started thinking, okay, maybe this is a kidnapping. And you know, when I read it, uh, it, the eye of the FBI, I actually had to Google for some reason, I thought the FBI hadn't been, you know, created yet, but I was, was wrong. Like, like early, <laughs> well, what year was it? Now it that was it, like, now, um, I want to say it was like 1919. Okay. So, I mean, it's only 12, 15 years old then at this point. I am going to search it quickly because I don't. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very. <laughs> 1908. 1908. Okay. Yeah. So it's still fairly new. For some reason, I thought it was the FBI was created in the fifties, but um, that's probably when they started getting shady. <laughs> <laughs> well, Great. Now, now we're on a list. Yeah, now, now we're on a now we're on a list. You're on the list. Yeah, not no. me. <laughs> you're like, uh-uh, I like I like America. Uh-uh, I like them. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, man. So anyway, the FBI, which are great and they help everybody, uh, <laughs> no, they, they join in and they they because they think it's related to potentially a kidnapping or something. So they're coming in and lending a hand, which, again, gives more you know firepower behind this effort. So there's a couple of things I didn't throw into the timeline, but I want to throw in now after we kind of went through. So this is that timeline followed. OK, that um, Alfred went missing. A lot of people are thinking it's a drowning. Yeah. So they're they're focusing a lot on the water. But then this tidbit kind of comes in after, which changes things up a little bit. So a day after he disappeared, so this is the July 3rd, yep. a couple hiking about six miles away from the Beelhart's camp. Um, and this is again about 2,500 to 3,500 feet of elevation higher than what their camp is. They reported seeing a boy who looked like Alfred sitting on a high ridge in a treacherous area called Devil's Nest near the top of Mount Champlain. The boy was gone. This was just creepy. I, I was just picturing myself, you know, walking down a trail kind of, you know, towards the summit. And, you know, off in the distance, you hear this crying child, like 3,000 feet above you, like way off on this ledge. And yeah. in an area that you know is very dangerous. And it would just be the creepiest, like only thing yeah. you can make a creeper is like a full moon and like fog rolling in. Yeah, if it was night, like that'd <laughs> yeah. be the worst. But yeah, well, yeah, this hiking couple said they walked far up the old river road until they became tired. They said yeah. they stopped uh, to rest, and then looking far up the mountainside is when they saw the boy sitting on a rock. So they quickly climbed up to where they saw the boy, like oh, hopefully any good person would do, and say, like, wow, there's a little kid up there. Yeah. Um, but by the time they got there, he had disappeared. So they expressed belief that no child could have reached that spot without assistance. So you think of, like, a four-year-old. Yeah. Like, that's... They don't do very hard stuff. So if there's people listening that don't have kids, I have a lot of them. You know, they'll, (laughs) I always say like they will wander, but they're, 
like they don't wander up mountains. They take the path of least resistance. Exactly. They look at yeah. things that are interesting. They'll like try and climb stuff, maybe fall. They kind of go in circles. You know, they don't beeline. And again, this is six miles from where they were. So that leads to, you know, and there were no 35 other- feet up, 3,500 feet up too. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that elevation gain is, is incredible and it's an entire day later. And, you know, remember- that's an ent- that's a day and a half to two days of a hundred people like shouting his name, looking yep. for him in a ten mile radius. So yeah. well beyond that that short distance, and he would have come out if that was him. But then that leads you to believe, what boy was that? If that's not Alfred, there's another young boy that was missing that wasn't reported. So it's either that it's either that was Alfred or it wasn't or it was something else that's unexplainable unexplainable or yeah maybe the 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 people hiking you know maybe you know what they thought was a cry was maybe some type of bird or something and yeah maybe but they still saw him yeah that's 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 what gets me is they saw him and tried going to him and then by the time they were able to get up there he wasn't there anymore yeah that's that's puzzling i yeah i don't know i don't know what to say to that (laughs) i i would lean on the the thought of they they saw something they thought it was a child but it really it was something else like i'm not saying something else like you know like Bigfoot maybe like a big bird or something that kind of yeah, looks like one of... and they mistook it for something else yeah and it made us you know it, it made a sound and it kind of sounded like somebody crying and maybe they were far enough away they you couldn't you know like you well, not going to be able was, to get a if it was great getting later in the day and i only am thinking about this just cuz i was just hiking to where yeah. we got to our base and literally turned around and went back to the car and we weren't planning to. So by the time we were getting towards the end of the hike, I'd been moving for about nine hours straight. It was getting dark out. I was exhausted. I was dehydrated. Yeah. And you start seeing like wood from far away that like kind of looks like a face, like things like oh, yeah. that. So you start seeing things that like aren't necessarily real. So maybe it was something like that where maybe like you said, they heard a bird cry yeah. and they look up and they see something that looks like a child. But maybe as you get closer, it doesn't. Yeah. To the point where like, oh, that child is gone. I mean, when I was in the Tetons, uh, you know, towards the end of our hike, the first day we were tired and every, every like turned, you know, log I saw off in the distance, I thought was like a grizzly. So <laughs> I can understand, you know, seeing something and, you know, once you get closer, you're like, oh, it's a log. I'm so stupid. Yeah. Like- <laughs> well, and then, so then there's another tidbit that they put in that again, that led them towards thinking now maybe this is a kidnapping was. They found a bandage in a nearby cabin, and why that's significant is Alfred was given a bandage that it was similar to mm-hmm. it because he had a blister on his foot from walking. So um, they found this bandage, and R.D. Brown, he's the chief of the FBI field office in the area, so he's the one that came out to represent the FBI. Yeah. He said the bandage was taken uh, and was going to be examined microscopically and compared to bandages the mother was carrying, mm-hmm. and nothing conclusive was found. The mother swears that it was the same one, but they basically did it like a match comparison to the base, the bandages that that group was carrying to see if it was similar. Yeah. And they couldn't definitively say whether it was or not. And, you know, it's it's crazy because of the time this happened in that. Well, that's what you makes you think is like, is it I you can't even say faulty scientists. There wasn't forensic science. Really there's yet. no DNA back then. Yeah, there's there's not anything that we have now. So, I mean, were they just not advanced enough at that point in time? to determine it to where they're just comparing fibers under a microscope to see if they're the same. Yeah. That's that, that's the thing I'm kind of going towards is yeah, they can look, 
you know, at the bandage under a microscope and see if it, you know, looks similar to other bandages, but they they yeah, can't like see test if it's the same brand or something or they same can't test style. any of the blood on the bandage for DNA at you know today they probably could test the blood and then take a sample from the parents and I'm sure they could probably come to a reasonable ex you know that just makes me think if they still that, had the bandage they could probably test it yeah I don't know and then find a Beelhart's family member that's still alive and just you can tell if it's a DNA match but that it is just kind of not funny but it's just. It, you know, th the 30s, that, that's really the most, you know, they could do is just see if the bandage was manufactured well, that was, the same as that the was other bandages. top of the line science. Let's so, look at this thing under a microscope and yeah. see if it matches the fibers. Like that was the, that was it. That was like the big, that's what the FBI was doing. That's the best you could do. Local police departments probably couldn't even do that. Just have a microscope. Yeah. If you think I'd, about it, it's the 30s. Like that's, it's, it was tough back then. But compared to earlier, it's even tough. So, I mean, they just keep getting better and better. Um, so the last tidbit that came in, and it, what's really neat, Mike, is I found a ton of these newspaper clippings. So, like, the actual stories from the newspaper. Yeah. So we have those with the case material. We'll put those on the website. But four months after the disappearance, the parents actually received a ransom note asking for $500 and say the boy was alive. So that they equated that to like six thousand or seven thousand or eight thousand dollars today, which still seems like a very small amount of money. Yeah. So investigators at that point determined it was a hoax and it never went anywhere from there. But the father and the mother were adamant that he didn't drown. Yeah. And that he was kidnapped, but they kind of left it at that. So some opportunistic person saw a way to make a buck and like I'm, you know, and I'm gonna leave yeah. a, a note and. Yeah, it's like a, just like a sick, either a sick joke or like, yeah, like an opportunist person. Like maybe I can make a quick buck off of these people, and yeah, which is really terrible to think about. But you know, that's so, a theme kind of throughout all these cases. The families always, you know, while drowning, animal attack, those kinds of things are probably the most logical explanation. You know, people closest to the the people have gone missing like to think that, you know, maybe it was a dis, you know, a kidnapping or uh, some type of foul play. You never want to. You always, you know, I think maybe they say, you know, kidnapping to hold out hope that maybe Alfred is still alive. Well, I wonder if it's like if I can psychoanalyze without having a degree or any experience in that field. But I just want to say, like, if, if I think about it in that regard of if it happened to me, it'd be extremely terrible. I almost wonder if you hope that that's the case because you feel less at fault. Because if one of my kids drown in a river because... I made one little mistake or like looked away. Yeah. Like that's on me. Yeah. Versus like, I like versus if somebody were to kidnap him, that's still on you, but it's kind of like someone else was involved versus it's not 100% your fault. And Man, again, I'm just, gives... I'm speculating. I'm speculating here because yeah, if someone came up and took my kid and was opportunistic when I wasn't looking, like yeah. I would still beat myself up to the day I died. If I couldn't get him back, I would, but it would be in a, in a weird way, not as bad as if I turn my back and they drowned. Yeah. Like, I feel like that would be a hundred times worse because I'm in 100% control of that situation. Yeah. You know, I only mention that because we've done enough cases now where a lot of the cases, the, the loved ones always suspect something more sinister, something, you know, foul play kidnapping you know even though probably in a lot of these cases the most likely explanation is 
um, injury, getting lost, animal attack. Just you know, so coming to exposure over exposure, time, especially for yes, the young, young thing, kids. Things like that. And um, it's just interesting. I, I Maybe it's just a part of human psychology that people – you know, want to believe it, you know, something like that. So they hold well, out they, hope they that need, yeah, they, they need an still... answer. They need closure of some point. And like just getting, ah, uh, he must have drowned, but there's no proof. Yeah. Between the two, it's almost like you said, maybe they, if he's kidnapped, there's still a possibility he's alive. So if that's like the way the brain moves to like hold on hope and grasp onto that, well, maybe he's okay. Maybe again, it's like a, it's kind of like a weird thing. Like, that would be good if he was kidnapped and still alive because drowning is done. He, he's yeah. he's actually dead. So if you think he's been kidnapped, you can still cope with the fact that he's alive somewhere. Yeah, and I and the only reason why I even bring that up is because there there does seem to be some type of um, common thread in a lot of these cases. Oh, yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, this isn't the first time we've read that family members close to the person that went missing believes something else happened than what the logical theory is or what the, you know, official theory is. So that's all I was bringing up. And I just, I find it interesting that, um, time and again, we see that same kind of thing happening sure. where, you know, you know, I guess I'll get into the official theories here for Alfred, but, um, yeah, it's, you know, now that we've done enough of these, you, we can kind of start to see kind of common commonalities between each case. A main commonality I see is, you know, lack of preparation, not taking the wilderness serious enough. Yeah, the proper precautions, especially for like, I think the biggest one is river crossings in general. Yep. Especially now this isn't relevant to this case per se, but I was even thinking about this when I was out hiking every time we cross even like a creek that's moving swiftly. Yeah. Like I unbuckle my backpack instinctively every time I take everything off. In case I go in, because there's a lot of stories of, you know, you might be able to swim even with a current. Yeah. But you get a 30 pound bag on your back that starts getting waterlogged and hiking backpacks are clipped to you like in four different spots. Sometimes mm -hmm. that can pull you under. And then in a panic, you might not be able to undo it. And you could just drown trying to get out of your backpack. Yeah. So like, so like it's where it's like, I'm, I'm a pretty seasoned hiker. So are you, I either unclip it and put it on one shoulder or I carry it in my hand. I don't ever have it on my back for reasons of I don't trust it. And that could be in two feet of water that's moving swiftly. Yeah. I don't care. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, I've played in rivers before, but it's completely different when you're out there and in a mountain where you don't know if there's a deep spot, if it's, you know, right now it's spring, summer. So there's a lot of mountain runoff. Mm -hmm. So at, at that time, you know, if there's a lot of rainfall and the river is moving really swiftly, uh, that could have been the thing that did it. You know, you're going in there to take a bath and maybe normally the river's calm. You've been there before, but maybe it rained a couple days beforehand and you're still having that high flow rate. So water's, you know, super powerful and you have to take it seriously when you're out in backcountry. Yeah. And I mean, you know, a four-year-old is not going to be able to put up any kind of fight against, oh, yeah. you know, a river. If something, if they get into a river that's, you know, flowing too fast, well, yeah, a river that's two feet deep might be half his body height or more right there. So I'll, that'll segue us right into the official theory. Official theory from the authorities was Alfred uh, drowned. Which I would argue makes the most sense. It yeah. really does. They lost him at the river. They were all at the river and they can't find him there. And I've got I've got kind of a, a theory on why nothing was found. I'll get into that in a minute. All right. Um, 
Ranger Muma was very disturbed by this disappearance and later wrote about it in a book uh, called Recollections of a Rocky Mountain Ranger. He conducted somewhat of an experiment in which he filled a gunny sack with rags and enough stones to give it the weight of a small boy. He tossed the sack into the stream where the boy was last seen. He recounted that he had to run very fast to keep it in sight until it reached Fall River and then it disappeared uh, under an overhanging bank. He had workers on that section for days and none of them could recover the sack. So that was actually a pretty genius idea for the 30s of, like, let's see how the river's working and moving. And I can't. So the river's strong enough that it's carrying a sack that has rocks in it downstream. Yeah. That's pretty that that's pretty intense. That's a pretty fast moving river. And, you know, I yeah. think this is one of the first cases where I I kind of agree with the official theory. Yeah, and I'd argue that experiment alone kind of changed my mind. One of the reasons why I think maybe nothing was found was, I think, a couple of reasons. So when we talked to uh, the chief uh, search and rescue um, guy in Colorado in episode three, he was kind of talking to us about how sophisticated search and rescue operations are now and that... Really, that sophistication didn't start happening until probably the 70s. Now we're going all the way back to the 30s. So, yeah, they have a lot of manpower out in the, you know, the woods. But the Civilian Conservation Corp, you got to remember what that was. That basically was a group of unemployed, unmarried men that couldn't find work. So the government basically said, come with us. We need trails made. We need, you know, logs cut. We need all this work done out, you know, in the national parks and we'll pay you guys. These people are not trained in search and rescue. So it's like less of like, look at it as manpower covering the area, more of like aimless wandering of a giant crowd. Yeah, I I would say, you know, yeah, it's more compared to like, I don't I don't want to like take a hit on these people because they're out there doing it. Like, I'm sure they're trying their best, but there's you still need organization. You can't just drop a bunch of people in an area and say, go nuts. You want to make sure that like. Someone's with a map doing yep. a grid pattern to say, okay, this area was searched by team this. Now this team move a mile west. And you have this communication that it's a big consorted effort of like teams going on the ground and teams watching the map and all this yeah. coordination. And they had just got shortwave radio. Like yeah. <laughs> so they really have no no technology. There's no uh no one in the sky, you know, no airplanes um surveying the area. They've got, you know, 150 guys that are not skilled in search and rescue. I don't even at the in, at this time in the 30s, search and rescue really wasn't, you know, it's it was not a thing at all. <laughs> it wasn't a thing at all. It was just people. If someone went missing, they would get a bunch of people together. They'd go out in the woods and they'd, you know, stomp around and look. And if you got lucky, you would maybe find the remains or find them. Kind of like before fire departments, they just had bucket brigades, like make a line and carry water, like in a, in a line. And that's like how they fought fires. Like how they've searched people is someone's missing, get the word out and everyone yep. show up at this spot. And so the one thing they did have was uh, bloodhounds from the local jail. But again, when we talked to the search and rescue officer from Colorado, he said, if the area gets contaminated before they bring the bloodhounds in, there's no way those dogs are going to be able to get a, a sense Which of this. Maybe kid. 150 dudes trampling around the woods might just do that. Exactly. So in in modern search and rescue operations, 
one of the things they do is they make sure not to disturb the the search area before they get these canines in there because they need you know a bunch of people stopping around disturbing the ground you know leaving scents all you know scent all over the place it's going to be harder for those dogs to track and i just can't imagine back in the 30s they probably just brought the dogs in they didn't they're like all right let's just you know here's this they probably gave like a sock or something and like sent them off so there was probably so now you just turn around my whole like excited like wow they amassed all these people to like wait they blew it no i still think it's impressive (laughs) yeah i still think it's impressive that they were able to get that many people out into the woods in such a short time period to start you know like they always say the first 12 hours first 24 hours in a missing person case is probably the most important vital especially if you're, you're trying to find someone still alive so the fact that they were able to get those people out there that fast that fast and i always i i will say it a million times i don't care if people are sick of me saying it he's four <laughs> years old how yeah. far could they have gone yep. and that's also i think plays credence into the drowning and swept away by the river because if he wasn't in the river yeah even if they're doing it wrong in that short window with that many people in that small of an area. Yeah. They should have been able to find him. The thing that throws me off is like the things they did to the river that they would never do today, even if someone was missing because of like disturbing the like ecosystem, like they shut entire rivers off and diverted rivers and dragged them and they're pulling crap out. That still shocks me that they, they weren't even to find him then. Cause even when, um, he uh, conducted his test. It's not like they were doing all that stuff again. Like, yeah, they couldn't find the sack. It was probably, it's probably at the bottom of the river somewhere to this day. Like there's some sack sitting there, like in the current. But I mean, they were diverting rivers, draining things out, dragging everything and trying to find, and they didn't come up with anything. So that, that really got me too, is did this kid like, like did his body end up in some strainer point that was so deep or so like in this spot that just no one found it. Yeah, I think I, I honestly think drowning is probably the most logical explanation. I would say the second uh explanation would be maybe an animal attack. But with that's that what many, I was thinking too, like a mountain lion or mountain something lion. the size of him and him being by himself. I mean there there's uh bears in the park too. So you know that many people stomping around that quickly, I think you would have seen Yeah, and they would have scared them all off. I mean, let's be honest. They like you. They would have scared him ex- off, or they would have seen the remains, or they would have seen yeah signs of an animal attack that fast. It was summer. No, there was no I'm snow with on you. The ground. So yeah, I I think an animal attack, while not likely, is still I think in the mix for what could have happened. Yeah, it's possible, but highly unlikely compared to what was happening. I'm gonna rule out. So what um, do you, what are your thoughts on that? The hiking couple that saw the boy at Devil's Nest. I honestly think because I've this I've it's happened to me. You're out in the woods, you've been hiking all day, you're tired, you might be a little dehydrated. You just see kids crying. You're up at elevation. <laughs> you, not necessarily you I know, know. But yeah. I think you sometimes even hear stuff that isn't really there. I I'm I still think they probably heard a bird or some maybe it was some type of rodent or something making a noise up there. And you know, I mean even rock formations at a distance look like well, and that's why aren't. I said I'd, I'd love to know, and I couldn't find if they saw him at like dusk or at a point yeah. in the day where it's low light. Because as soon as light gets just a little bit, like as soon as the sun goes down just a tiny bit, you start seeing all sorts of stuff. And what's it? Isn't that called a confirmation bias? Or what's the term? You know, these people knew this kid was missing. 
So you're kind of looking. Yeah. They, you're kind of heard, looking for it. It's like a red herring almost. Like they heard about the kid and they're also in the area and they're like, oh, is that a kid up there? I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get an email letting us know. <laughs> that we said the wrong whatever but, the heck it is. Um, what I, you know, I, I think maybe these people. Um, you Hold know, on, Mike. I think you are right. Nobody can yell at you. Confirmation <laughs> bias. The tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. There you go. I knew it I was. Could, I could skew that to, to be the thing that you said. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's it's plausible to think, you know, these people knew Alfred was hiking in the area and went missing. They're out there. Let's assume because we don't know. So let's just assume it's later in the day. They've been hiking all day. Um, yeah. They, they hear this noise of what is probably an animal and they see something off in the distance. Maybe it's a rock formation or a fallen log or something. And they mistake it for Alfred. Cause how could you climb up there and not find anything from him? I mean, if, like you said, a four-year-old, first of all, how did a four-year-old get up there? Yeah. And if he's going to run away, is he going to be making noise still or if whatever? He's up there somehow, he's not going anywhere. He would still be up there as soon as they climbed to find him. And if he was, dragged up there by an animal you would find blood or you know some type of evidence that an animal dragged him up there so i think i think those people didn't actually see him okay you That's know I, I i think i'm with you on that one i think it's i think he drowned i think unfortunately they were bathing in, in the river and he was probably you know the dad was fine because he's a full-grown adult but i think the river was probably too strong for a toddler well it's probably I'm just trying to picture like they both got out and he want like said he wanted to go back in the river and he's like, Oh, run up by William and or run up there and, and go with yeah. those guys and instead of walking them there and saying, Hey, is it okay if I leave Alfred with you and getting confirmation? Yep. He just went back to camp and saw his son running towards him, thinking, yeah. Oh, why wouldn't he go right there? Maybe he just went right back in the river in the same spot where he just was with his dad. Yeah. And then got swept away there. So the other cause that's the thing too, the other guys came back to camp. And it was like they had no idea Alfred was even there. Yeah. So like that tends to tell me that Alfred never even went by them because they wouldn't leave him alone. No. And I'm going to rule out. I I don't think kidnapping is. I agree. I don't think there's enough people in the park. No. And I think um, I think the probability of him drowning is so high that I just don't see kidnapping, even though we had that hoax letter. I, I just can't see that being a real possibility Yeah, especially here. because in the newspaper clippings, it's you have the mom and the dad saying that they think it's kidnapping, so you just have some sick bastard just in town like, you know what, all right, it is. I'm going to send a letter to the parents and say I have him and try and extort them for money, which is awful, but there's some sick people out there. So you got to remember, too, this was, um, you know, the Great Depression was still going on. People were, you know, hard for money. Probably yeah. 1938. I mean, the Great Depression been going on for a while. People are probably desperate to get money any way possible. I mean, this guy maybe who wrote the hoax letter probably, you know, maybe it was as innocent as like, I just need to get food for my family. I don't care how I do it now. I just need the money. So I yeah, mean, I think knows? that plays a fact. I think that plays a factor in it. All right, I I think I'm with you. I I think this is unanimous. I think it's unanimous for you, I, and the official theory. I think it's it's clear-cut drowning, and they just unfortunately could not recover the body. Yeah, I think I think because of a lack of, um, you know, skilled search and rescue people at the time, I think that hindered their ability to locate 
evidence or the remains. Not to say that a team, a, a, you know, a SAR operation could find uh, the boy's body now, but I just feel like with the technology we have available now and the, the fact that we have actual uh, volunteers and paid search and rescue people that are trained to do this, this is this is what they do. That would lead to a better outcome today. So, no, I'm I'm in complete agreement. I think I think I am. I think I think it's I think it's drowning. And unfortunately, they just never got closure with with recovering the body. Yeah. So uh, I once again, uh, well, Joe, do you have anything else to add? Nope. <laughs> Before we wrap nope. it up. Nope. Uh, once again, thanks for tuning in to episode 10 of the Locations Unknown podcast. Yeah. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to keep updating that LinkedIn page. I don't care. And, I, uh, I got to do more work on our Twitter account. I Do we have a Twitter? We do. Okay. Um, so <laughs> this uh, is how like, you can tell that this is not our full time job. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. I know depending on how many episodes you've listened to, Joe and I both have full time jobs outside of this, and we've never done podcasting before locations unknown. We we like hiking and I think find... they could tell that we've never done podcasting yeah. before. I think that one's blatantly obvious, but <laughs> Joe and I have been hiking for 10 years and we've, we've got a lot of experience in the backcountry, So we, we enjoy talking about it when these cases are very interesting. So, yeah. um, we're not, we're not part of the media or anything like that. No, God, so, we'd be fired in a day. That's why thank God for podcasts. Yeah. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. Uh, and like we said at the beginning of the show, we are now going to be off for the remainder of July and August. Interesting fact about this case, uh, Joe and I are recording this on uh, 4th of July Eve. And oh, yeah. uh, th- this case happened over this week um, many, many years ago. So uh, I didn't kinda, even think about that one. That's I, uh, I didn't either. Yeah, it's serendipitous for sure. <laughs> so uh, we will we'll see you guys again in uh, September. We got a lot of new cases and we've got some cool new ideas. We're, we're batting around. So make sure to tune back in. 